This week's episode is brought to you by ISTE. At ISTE Live 23, on June 25th through 28th in Philadelphia and online, you'll discover what's next in education and explore ideas for using tech to revolutionize learning. Get inspired about teaching and learning as you reconnect with peers and meet an enthusiastic global community of educators. And then bring that joy back to your school. Register now at isteconference.org. Hello and welcome to the EdSurge podcast, a weekly look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young. I'm an editor and a reporter here at EdSurge. We are a nonprofit newsroom covering innovation in education. When it comes to getting access to the latest research by the world's scientists and scholars, there is a stark digital divide. Usually people affiliated with a college, like students and professors, they have unlimited access to large collections of scholarship like JSTOR and big-name journals. To everyone else, this scholarly work is locked. Or journal articles can only be read by paying hefty per-article fees. To our guest this week, Peter Baldwin, this is a major equity issue. It's a grotesque disparities that exist in the world. And it's a disparity that many professors may not even realize. They don't really see access as a problem because they have unlimited access in their own little bubble. And they often, when you talk to them, seem to have no idea that the rest of the world, which is to say 99.9% of all humanity, even in the first world, even in the most highly industrialized and wealthy nations, have no access to JSTOR and Hein Online and all, all those wonderful sort of collections of articles and databases and stuff that are you know, just normal within the university world. All that, the minute you graduate, the minute you go off with your BA, you know, having written your senior thesis with all that wonderful access, and suddenly there you are, hired by Dewey, Scrum and Howe, and they say, oh, why don't you sort of, you know, write up something about this, and you realize you have no access to the stuff anymore. Yours has been expelled from the digital paradise of the university world into that bleak, non-accessible uh, um, world. And even among scientists and researchers at colleges... Not everyone has equal access to the latest scholarship. And then, of course, you get to the disparity between the first and the third world, the global south, where even the university libraries there, such as they are, don't have the riches, much less anybody else. There is a long-standing call to make scholarship free to all. It's known as the open access movement. And Baldwin argues that at this time when AI and ChatGPT are reshaping information, this could be a turning point that speeds up the move to open access scholarship. Baldwin's latest book looks at the history and future of the open access movement. It's called Athena Unbound, Why and How Scholarly Knowledge Should Be Free for All. And fittingly, the publisher of this book made a version free online. He is not arguing that all information should be free. He's focused on scholarship made by those who have full-time jobs at colleges, and so they're not looking for the payment from their writing to make a living. In fact, Baldwin argues that the whole idea of academic research hinges on work being shared freely so that other scholars can build on someone else's ideas or see from another scholar's work that they might be going down a dead-end path. Absolutely crucial to it. Uh, I mean, if, if you have something that you don't put out, 
it's of no use to anyone else. I mean, for obvious reasons, that it's secret and not known, but secondly, because it hasn't then been tested and hasn't been read by others and thought about by others and questioned by others. And so, you know, knowledge un- untested is useless knowledge. I started by asking Baldwin to explain how open access models of scholarly publishing usually work. How can these articles be free to read? The fundamental premise of open access, I should say, is that instead of the consumer paying for the content, the producer pays to put out the content. The producer pays the charge that normally the consumer would pay, and therefore the consumer pays nothing at the point of readership. And so the question is, how do you find the monies to do that? And there the scientists have managed to find the monies they need in the university research libraries, and the humanities and the social sciences are the ones who are out in the cold and have not yet figured out how to drum up the money that they need uh, for their work. So, so the, my overall point is, you know, in, in the long run, it's inevitable. In the short run, some of us are getting there more quickly than others. Just for, for people who don't know, how does that, how does the library pay for, end up paying for those science journals then if it's free? Well, so as I say, the point of open access publication is that instead of the consumer paying, the producer pays. So instead of a subscription fee that the consumer, either the person who subscribes or the library who subscribes for their clients, instead of a subscription fee, you pay article processing charges up front that the publisher then uses to make the article free for everyone. So what used to be library budgets that paid for subscriptions are now increasingly being turned around to pay for article processing charges. So the deans that oversee library budgets say, well, it's all well and good, Uh, to have this new open access um, journals. We've got to pay for them uh, for our faculty when they publish. Somehow we see that you're not paying subscriptions any longer because the journals are open access, but we now need to find the monies to allow our faculty to pay their article publishing fees. So voila, the monies that used to go to pay for subscriptions in the library budgets are now being used to pay for article processing fees on behalf of the faculty who belong to whatever institution we're talking about. So the, the budgets, the, I mean, the monies that used to go for subscriptions are now being used for the publishing charges, which is great if you belong to those fields uh, where the journals are able to collect publishing charges and use them to publish open access. And that's, generally speaking, not the case for the humanities and social sciences, partly because they publish more books than articles still, whereas the scientists are much more article-driven. Scientists don't write books, you know, they write articles. Humanities, social science people tend to write books more than articles. <laughs> yeah, one of the things about your book is that it's just reminding me how how complex and differentiated it all is by field and and model, that there's just a lot that's evolved, <clears throat> a lot of different ways to solve the problem. And as a system, there's not like a there's not an answer that's evolved that's workable for everybody. Like you mentioned, like Humanities end up getting left out of budgets because scientists got there first or whatever. The, they figured it out in a way that ended up monopolizing the budget that was available for this for this goal of spreading information. Yeah, no, precisely. As I say, the scientists have largely solved the problem and, you know, all power to them in that sense, except for the fact that that leaves the question of where the humanities and social sciences are going to get, find the money to be able to publish their stuff, open access. And the result is, you know, there are now increasing numbers of small presses that have been set up to do open access book publishing, for example. And 
that's all well and good, um, and it worked insofar as they managed to survive. But, you know, a small press in the best of times is not exactly something that you count on for the long term. And in open access days, presses come and go very quickly. And, you know, you publish a book with a small press, open access, and 10 years later it goes belly up. And then, you know, what happens then? Who, who holds the file? Where is the file going to be? You know, in the old days when you had a book on a library shelf, at least you know there it was. Um, and it wasn't going to sort of disappear. But nowadays, if you've published with a small open access press and you've got a file up there in the cloud somewhere and the press disappears, it's very unclear what happens to your file. So that's obviously a huge problem. We need some kind of you know, permanentized backup for these files that will guarantee their long-term accessibility, which we don't have yet. So the open access movement, it is, as your book reminds me, I mean, I've been covering this for a long time. A lot of, some readers will have, I mean, some listeners will have some awareness and others more or less. But I guess, first of all, when did the call for making this free Talk a little bit about like when that started to happen in a in a in an actual way that people started to make you know the open access movement as we know it and really start this narrative um, because it was something that wasn't really possible in the same way until digital came about which is relatively recent in in human history. Yes, well, well, well precisely, open access digitality is a necessary but not sufficient cause of open access. So you have to have digital technology to even begin to think about open access. And not until you get that. So what are we talking, uh, you know, sometime in the 90s, um, do you even begin to get the possibility of open access? So it doesn't exist before then, and it sort of slowly takes off after that. Now, having said that, that's not entirely true, because physicists, for example, who now effectively disseminate their work by putting it up on this website called Archive that's put out by Cornell. They do, you know, pre-print posts of their articles, and eventually the articles are often, you know, printed in a conventional scientific journal. But by that point, the physicists have, you know, long read, read them, and they all know about the arguments, and they never actually themselves look at those printed articles. That's sort of intended for future historians of science somewhere down the road, you know, who are doing priority studies or something like that. But the point is that even before digitality, physicists were doing something along these lines in the days of Xerox machines. You know, they were Xeroxing their preprints and sending them out at great expense and labor to the postal system to their colleagues all over the country. So they sort of had the idea, just get the paper out there in front of our colleagues, let them have a look, you know, let them get, get their feedback. That can be done by analog means, and the physicists were doing that. But of course, it's infinitely more convenient. And in that sense... Physics, I think, is a particular a field where a small group of highly trained people write stuff that is, you know, all but incomprehensible to anyone else, and therefore it's a sort of a small in-group, and they're able, they were able to do it even in the analog era when we were talking about paper and postage. But for the rest of us who work in fields that are much bigger and where the sort of the the, the in-group is less defined, you know, we don't quite know whom to send it to. So the idea of just being able to post it and say, hey, does anyone, is anyone interested in this topic? And if so, give me your thoughts about this and have I made any mistakes? And you know, the, the ability to get feedback and to sort of put it up there for anybody's use, of course, is, is exhilarating. Having said that, when there's so much information up there, of course, it may well be that the vast bulk of it, nobody ever looks at and much less gives you any sort of feedback on it. But, you know, that's the same as with books. It's some tiny fraction of all library books that make up 
the vast majority of circulation. You know, the reality is that most books in a library are bought, bound, shelved, and then they sit there for the rest of their natural lives until they're finally, at some point in the future, deaccessioned. They're just never read because, you know, the power law of attention dictates that a small minority of all content receives the vast bulk of all attention. That is just, I'm afraid, reality. And it's something that one has to get used to and you know, just accept in the same way that we accept gravity. There's no way of getting around that. So digitality sort of makes that even more painfully clear as you put your thing up and you never hear about it again, right? So, and then other things go viral. You could see the stats online. You could just, it's painfully clear. You know that it's three people that read it or whatever low number. Yeah, yeah, precisely. And if you, you know, if you publish a book with a, with a press, um, not every press has quite got this up and running yet, but no, even if it's open access, you could see how many downloads, you could see how many people have, you know, commented on your book or cited it in citation indexes. You know, it's all painfully clear the amount of attention that you are or are not getting. And in the analog days, that was a little less, you know, apparent, um, shall we say, because who knew? Somebody was maybe taking your book off the library shelves and was reading it and being inspired, even if they hadn't bought it. You know, it, it was a little unclear. Now it's more painfully clear. And it, but the, the reality you suspect, or maybe some some librarian has the uh, the data, is that the, the, they go on the shelf, they sit there. This is the life of a book. Yeah, no, no, this we know. But 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 it's the same way with you know. Films on Netflix. I mean, a few of them are watched by tons of people and a lot of them are watched by nobody. You know, it's just, uh, or, you know, on, you know, Spotify and Apple Music, in your own collection, it tells you how many times have you listened to a song, you know, and some of them, oh yeah, it's still there and I haven't listened to it in years, you know. It, yeah. It's just the way we, you know, some things grab our attention and others less so. So I, I want to talk about, though, the state of open access as you see it now. You know, do you feel like it is you know, growing as a concern, the open access journals and the, the, you know, you're, you're saying that you feel like it should be all free. Obviously the reality is not that way. There's plenty of scholarly work that is, you know, I have to go subscribe to that journal to get it. Um, and if, and, you know, for most people not affiliated with the university, or even if they are, their university might not have it. So it's effectively locked out. Like where, how would you describe the state of things you know, now, um, decades after this idea of, hey, we should try to make it free? I would say, in the long run, it's inevitable. I don't think there's any question. For, for, again, we're talking only about scholarly literature here. Uh, you know, does that mean 50 years or 30 or 20? That I, I don't quite know. But it's clear that we are heading in, in the right direction. But we're also heading there at very different speeds, depending on what kinds of content we're talking about. So for the sciences, if you take the, the ones that I started talking about a minute ago, the phys sciences like physics, mathematics, um, computer science, they basically function online. They basically read preprints. Um, they've sort of solved the problem effectively for themselves. That's not to say the journals don't still exist. Mathematics journals, for example, I was just told by a, a prominent mathematician the other day, he says, yeah, no, of course, nobody reads the journals, but they're still there. They're there because they basically are used to validate hiring decisions so that when, you know, a mathematical career is made by getting your article into whatever the most prestigious mathematics journals are, and that sort of validates your application on the job market, 
But nobody actually reads the printed version. They've read it all in preprint before. So mathematics has sort of solved the problem just, you know, almost all the way, but there still is that complete waste of energy that goes into the printing and the publication and the subscription to the math journals. But there, there's absolutely no reason why the universities couldn't say, forget it, we're not going to be sort of locked into this prestige hierarchy of the journals. We are going to decide on the basis of the quality of the work, whether that work arrives as a printed journal article or arrives as a typescript. And if the, if the universities just decoupled their own promotion, tenure, and hiring decisions from the prestige hierarchy of the journals, they could just put the journals completely out of business insofar as they're, they're signaling prestige. So mathematics... The only, can I just, can I, I, I just want to push back just slightly and say, isn't the... So if a preprint is good enough, isn't the, the peer review then also a waste of time? Isn't that the one ingredient between preprint and scholarship that because somebody these scholars are, are validating it other people in the field and saying you know this this is not just a prestigious journal this is actually like not a kook you know or, or a, a, a false uh piece of, of research don't get me wrong review is still necessary review is what separates the wheat from the chaff and you know in in a world of infinite time we wouldn't need review because we could all read everything but we're not immortal and there's just too much content so we need a steer on which direction to go first and what articles to read first what books to read first so yes review is needed but the point of pre-publication review in the sort of traditional sense was that it in the analog days when you published something it was a waste of resources to publish a bad article and it would be better to publish a good article. And so the pre-publication review is necessary to tell you which ones are good and bad and which ones not to waste paper on. But now, where there actually is no waste of resources in the digital age, whether the review takes place before or after is much less important. You can smack it all up against the wall and then you can see what sticks. The review has to be done and I think the academic world ought to be encouraging more review of its own output. And it ought to do that probably by taking that into account, the work done in review, taking that into account in promotion and tenuring and, and hiring decisions as one of the elements of scholarly um, you know, participation, community building, um, collegiality. Uh, review is as necessary. We can't all you know, be broadcasters and none of us receivers. And so I think there is an element to which we've neglected the review process, neglected the review activity, and that that should be, um, you know, encouraged and validated and, and rewarded more than it is now. But whether that review is before or after publication is much less important. After the break, why the latest AI tech, like ChatGPT, makes the issue of open access even more important. Stay with us. For more than four decades... The ISTE conference has been recognized as one of the world's most influential education events. It's where educators and education leaders gather to engage in hands-on learning, share best practices, and hear from the brightest minds from the world of education and beyond. At ISTE Live 23, June 25th through 28th in Philadelphia and online, you'll discover what's next in education and explore ideas for using tech to revolutionize learning. From real-world lessons that empower students, to groundbreaking ways to collaborate, to leading-edge edtech tools, you'll find out how to lead next-gen learning 
during hundreds of strategy-packed sessions. Rediscover your passion for teaching and learning as you reconnect with peers and meet an enthusiastic global community of educators. Then bring that joy back to your school. Register today at isticonference.org. How do we get there, right? How do we get to a, you're mentioning that it's all headed in that direction, but is there something that that you feel like would, you know, help solve this larger puzzle or or is it a narrative thing to people not, is there not enough understanding within the professoriate of how much the rest of us are left out in the cold? Uh, well, let me start with a second. There certainly is not enough understanding in the professoriate of, of how much others are left out in the cold. And that that is one of, if I may speak on behalf of my fellow colleagues, that is one of our, our great failings at the moment. We just, you know, we're clueless. And and so many people you talk to will just say, oh, well, you know, surely you can get a hold of it somewhere. If just Google it, just Google it. You know, It's just not true. You come up against these paywalls and if you're within a library system, then you don't. And the most grotesque thing is, you know, you can often find these situations where if you want to read a book review of a book, that book review costs you more to access than the book does to buy. So you can easily spend, I found an example just the other day, a book published by Cambridge University Press on their website for like 42 bucks. And the review of that book in a journal published by OUP costs $51 to it have access to for 24 hours. You know, ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous, right? Um, it's just sort of publisher rent-seeking, and of course the result is that nobody actually pays those $51. You then figure out some other way of getting at it, but, you know, I, unless you're really sort of, you know, bereft of any sort of, any possible access to a university library or something like that. Now, having answered the, ah, you, yeah, you asked about, um, uh, is there something that would sort of move us in this direction? Well, one big thing that would move us in this direction would be reform of copyright law. I don't think that's about to happen anytime soon because the interests are so confused and mixed and conflicting that it would be almost impossible to put together sort of a coalition in favor of major copyright reform. But what would be needed is a reduction of the term, at least for scientific research and its output. You know, right now, copyright law has been extended in the beginning, you know, in the, in, the, in the late 18th, early 19th centuries, when copyright laws were first written, the term was like 14 years, and then sometimes you could renew it. So if, after 14 years, bang, it went into the public domain. Now it's, you know, life of the author plus 70, so, you know, easily, well over a century. And that's what makes it something to fight about. That's why the publishers won't give it up, because they have this sort of, this, this boondoggle that allows them to have property rights in intellectual property, you know, effectively much longer than we have property rights in our houses or anything else that we own, you know. It's practically eternal possessive rights that they have. And if we were to be able to cut that down to something approximating what it used to be when the copyright laws were first passed, the whole thing would just be much less worth fighting about. The reality, of course, is that the vast bulk, a bit like the library books being read or not, the vast bulk of all just to stick with books for the moment, of all books, are totally commercially worthless six months after publication. And yet, they remain locked up by copyright law for a century. You know, it just makes no sense. It would be much better to have these books that have lost their commercial value. Let's say, let's give them two or three years of commercial value. Two or three years later, most books are not being 
bought anymore. And the few ones that are being bought, of course, they should stay in copyright and let the publishers and the authors make money off of them. That's fine. But the vast bulk of it is simply no longer commercially valuable in any form. And that should be made free. There's absolutely no reason not to make it, set it free and allow people read it at no expense. How would we do that if like my book doesn't make X amount of money after two years, then it's then it goes into the public domain? Something like that. I mean, why not? And then if it suddenly started, you know, let's say it suddenly started getting downloaded like mad, right? Because your book took off. It went viral. Then it should be the right of the publisher and the author, you know, to pull it back out of the public domain and to issue a new edition or whatever. I mean, I'm all for, you know, letting people who have something that's commercially valuable make money off of it. I've got no, you know, moral, uh, you know, sense of that, that that's something uh, illegitimate. I just think that the stuff that is sits there locked up and unusable should be freed because it's it's a good to have it freed and there's no downside to this because nobody's losing anything. Nobody's losing readership or income or royalties or anything like that. Well, we've mentioned it a couple times, but I, I do have to ask about ChatGPT and what it, you know, because we're in this new, all of a sudden, that new relationship with information. We've been in this world of internet and search for a long time. And now people are saying that, well, with these AI chatbots, there's a new, with ChatGPT and others, there's a new relationship with finding information. And it seems like it does have an impact for scholarly work in some way. Okay, this is somewhat above my pay grade, but I have two points that I want to make about ChatGPT. The first is, is um, that I, American copyright law apparently doesn't allow you to copyright anything that's not written by a human. If that's true, and that means that nothing that ChatGPT churns out um, is actually copyrightable, then this may just blow the copyright system just blow the bottom out of it. Because if you know, 80% of our content is, being, is not copyrightable anymore, what's the point of copywriting you know, the little bits that are? And, the, and the, the little bits that are copyrighted, people will just ignore it because ChatGPT can you know, do a better job anyway or certainly do an equally good job and just you know, circumvent the copyright issue. So it may be that it totally shakes up the whole copyright system. I don't know. Like it forces, it, you would think it would force a change in the way human copyright law production would be treated um, otherwise, robots will have this <laughs> ability to put all the human writers out of work instantly. Well, that isn't that. That's one of the things that we're fearing. But but if that Chat GPT content is not copyrightable, then it, the, the point of copywriting the human produced stuff seems decreasingly obvious, right? I mean, why bother when there's this huge external amount of content available that's equally good? But the second point is equally good. ChatGPT, as I understand it at the moment, scrapes and feeds off of the crappy end of the web. It's whatever it can get into. It doesn't feed off the good stuff in the web. I don't think it's able to get past the paywalls and into the scholarly databases and into the journal, you know, the journal, the JSTORs and things like that, as far as I know. I, don't th I think you're right. I think you're right. So insofar as that's true, then, all we're, then we're getting garbage in, garbage out product from ChatGPT. And insofar as we want ChatGPT to actually be of use to us and help us, we desperately need it to be allowed access to the stuff that we're kept out of. And therefore, in a sense, open access is the key to making ChatGPT work. Because good ChatGPT 
should be based on the stuff that right now the paywalls keep us out of. Obviously, if you see ChatGPT as a threat, you don't want to do, have it to be functioning at all. You know, then you'll want to just you know, stick to the National Enquirer end of the web. But you know, what's the point of having a, a, an incredibly powerful tool that doesn't work, you know, is fed only garbage, when you could have an incredibly powerful tool that really knows what's the information that's out there. And that, as far as I can see, is not the case yet, but presumably anybody interested in ChatGPT will also be an open access advocate because they will want ChatGPT to feed off the good parts of the web as well. It seems like there'd be an interesting, there'd be an interesting, you know, exercise, and maybe somebody's doing it as we speak, to, for each discipline, have like the latest preprints and journals train the latest, you know, AI chatbot, whatever, whoever makes it, they're all similar, these large language models, from what I can tell, you know, train it on the good stuff and then offer that as a service. But then who gets access to that? Yeah. Well, uh, Wikipedia, for example, is, is toying with the idea of doing a chat wiki that basically, in other words, the same sort of thing, but feeding only off of Wikipedia, which is, you know, people opinions differ, but, but it, yeah. you know, it is at least vetted information and not just bilge. So interesting. No. So you'd be okay with, with, with that as an idea. It might be the way to, to sort of get around some of the false information or misinformation. Problems. Well, that is obviously is one of the big issues with chat GPT. I, you know, it's not a, being okay with chat GPT is sort of like, you know, am I okay with gravity? Yeah. You know, I, I sort of gravity and I get along and I just don't, you know, it's just something I think we have to live with um, because it's clearly here and it's not going to go away. And weird ideas like, oh, let's wait for six months before we think about it again. Or the, the Italians briefly, you know, outlawed it altogether. The Europeans are, you know, regulate now want to be the great regulators again. I'm all for regulating it. And I think it probably desperately needs that. But it's not like it's going to disappear. And it's not like we somehow can just think it away. So we'll have to figure out how best to use it. I, I, I mean, the upside, of course, is if someone came to you and said, hey, I'm going to give you a completely free, reasonably intelligent, well-educated research assistant, do with them what you want, put them to use. You know, would you say, oh, no, 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 let me do the work myself? No, that's effectively what we're all being offered, right? It's just extraordinary. I have to ask about piracy, which is, you know, there are these vast um, collections of um, journal articles that you can go like, I won't give the site name right here, but like there are, they're out there, right? And people can search them. They're not legal, as I understand it. They violate copyright, but they exist nonetheless. Um, and sometimes they go down and up, right? I think, but you know, what, how do you, how important is piracy to the goal of, of figuring out a business model that makes open access possible? Well, interesting question. I mean, pirates are the open access movement's best friend, but of course we can't sort of say that in polite company. We have to sort of, you know, register a sort of harumph of disapproval even while saying, well, they certainly keep the publisher's feet to the fire. You can look back, I mean, 20 years ago, in the sort of cowboy days of the web, we had, you know, Mega Upload and Pirate Bay and, you know, places that just, you know, put, you know, commercial content, basically music, pop music and, and popular films, right? That, that was sort of the stuff that was worth it. Just an easy way to find pirated stuff. Yeah, yeah. It was, yes, exactly. 
so that was all clamped down on. I mean, you know, international regulation, you know, countries work together that, you know, Kim Mega Upload or whatever his name was, you know, was helicoptered out of New Zealand to send trial in the US. And, you know, there was a lot of international cooperation. And basically they were shut down. And what do we have now? We have Spotify and, you know, Apple Music and Netflix and blah, 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 which indicates that it's obviously not open access, but it is a reasonably open form of access at a reasonable price, you know, to pay 13 bucks a month for Amazon Prime, you get, I think, something like 15,000 movies and TV shows. You know, as a lending library, that's not a bad model. And clearly, the most members of the public have decided that they're willing to pay a reasonable price for reasonable access to a ton of good stuff. And there are, of course, there are a couple, you know, some 13-year-olds who still go onto the pirate sites because their allowance, you know, their appetite for content is bigger than their allowance. And, and therefore, you know, they haven't totally disappeared, but broadly speaking, they are no longer a big issue. So in the academic world, I mean, for scholarly knowledge, there are these sites where people go. And um, I think they are as much there. In some cases, they're there because the Russians fund them in order to allow them to sort of stick their nose up the publishing industry of the West just sort of to be annoying. Um, in other cases, they're funded because, I mean, they're you know funded by contributions and voluntary donations and that sort of thing. Um, why are they? They're there because the publishing industry has simply been unable to get its act together and deliver content at a reasonable price. My example of the fifty-one dollar book review for twenty-four hours, you know, I think says it all. If given the choice between that and going onto a pirate site and technically doing something illegal, ah. Eh, you know, I, th I think we'll all inhale if that's the choice. And, and, and that, that is, but that's a choice that the publishers are, are giving us. If you look at the downloads for SciHub, the bulk of them, the majority of them come from China. That makes sense. The Chinese don't have access to all the journals and so forth in the same way that we do. But the second largest number of downloads comes from the US, which is probably indicative of the fact that American professors and graduate students find Sci-Hub just more convenient than their own libraries, you know, labyrinthine ways of getting into this. And, you know, given the choice, they say, screw it, I'm just going to go straight to Sci-Hub and get the article rather than having log in and enter your password and have them call you back. And, you know, all that nonsense it takes to get into a university library and do it legitimately. So it's just a convenience issue. So I think that tells you sort of a great deal about people's willingness to tolerate the pirate sites and turn a blind eye to them. Even you're describing even professors and students who may have paid access through their university to the article in question are going to the pirate site just per convenience. Well, exactly. In the same way that, you know, if you want to find out a book's publishing history nowadays, you go to Amazon rather than going and logging into your own university library because Amazon has from a lot of books has the information that you need and is much more convenient. I feel like there was an opportunity. Google Books is something we've we've talked about on on this podcast and in the Ed Search over the years. This Google Book Search that was it's been a while now, but it was this big experiment. But it feels like even before that, it feels like universities could have banded together to create the experience you're describing. They could have created some sort of um you know, for journals or books academically to, um, and, 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 you know, they haven't, and it, it probably isn't, you know, it's not Netflix, right? The demand for some of these journals is just not big enough probably to support the kind of like beautiful 
experience, user experience that, um, be- because just the, the numbers are just not the same. I, you know, so I guess who, who will build the Netflix of scholarly books if universities haven't really expressed it, the publishers are happy with the way things are. Excellent, excellent question. Um, the research libraries are fundamentally conflicted. They don't actually want open access because they are a resource for their own faculty, their own students. So if you have a you know tremendous, enormous, gargantuan research library at your university, you're not going to say, oh, let's give it all away. So... You know, when we go and hire somebody, we can't say, oh, if you come to us from Iowa, you know, you'll have exclusive access to this amazing library, unlike anyone else. And if you say to grad students, yeah, but we have, you know, a great library, come study here rather than somewhere else. All that comparative advantage will disappear in an open access future where everybody has access to, you know, a universal library of Alexandria on their laptop. So university libraries fundamentally don't want to give this stuff away. And you can look at... You know, who's doing the pushing on any of this open access? It's never universities. It's never university libraries, or at least only sort of limping thereafter. If I can put a plug in, um, and, I, and I confess to, you know, having my own conflict of interest here. If I can put a plug in for one institution that is pushing this, it is the New York Public Library, on whose board I serve. So, therefore, I, as I say, am conflicted about this. They are one of the few, possibly the only institution that is not conflicted because they are a major research library, one of the five or six biggest collections in this country. And at the same time, you know, they're the biggest municipal library system serving the public uh, anywhere, or certainly in, in this country. Again, so they have, as part of their mission, getting stuff out there, making it accessible. And they also happen to have a really juicy trove of stuff to make accessible. So, you know, unlike a municipal library that doesn't really have much to get out, uh, and unlike the research libraries that serve a limited public who want to hoard it, they, they sort of have, they, it is part of their mission to get stuff out. So they are working precisely with Google Books and various other organizations in an attempt to get as much as they possibly can up on the web in a sort of readable fashion. Now, you should also ask me, of course, about the Hachette um, case of the other day, of, well, two months ago now, um, against the Internet Archive, because that Internet Archive was, of course, doing the same sort of thing, and arguably they were sort of the avant-garde in this, uh, in this realm, and they got slapped back by the, by the uh, judge in New York, who basically said that controlled digital lending, which is what they were doing, is not compatible with uh, copyright law. Controlled digital lending you know, was an attempt to put, basically make libraries function in the digital age, and so if you owned a copy of a book, a physical book, and you scanned it, you were then allowed to show it on screen, not for downloads, to one reader at a time. So, and effectively, you sort of shifted, you format shifted the content to digital, and then you allowed readers to look at it, to read it, in the same way that they could with a physical book. But undeniably, in the process of doing that, you made a copy. And that is what they were slapped down for by the judge who said, Copyright law says you can't make the copy, and I don't care what your intentions are, even if they are just to be a library in the conventional sense in the digital age, that's not good enough. So that is a big setback for the open access movement. Um, It's going to be appealed. Whether that works or not, I don't know. The New York public approach is more cautious. It is making sure it has the rights to whatever it puts up before it does so. 
the hope is in the long term it'll be so clear that the vast bulk of books nobody cares about whether they should be put up or not. And therefore there is really no objection to putting them up and that eventually they won't have to actually go and make sure that somebody has signed on the dotted line in every instance because the presumption will be if a book is out of copyright and it, the publisher isn't thinking of reprinting it, it probably isn't worth anything to anyone and therefore why not let people read it? Um, so insofar as they can you know, get that as a kind of starting point for this mission, then that will allow everything that's in copyright still but out of print to be put up on screen. And that would be a big advance. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it, it seems like there is, as you say, a lot going on in the space. And it feels like, you know, there's a new chapter coming for um, thinking through the role of of scholarly information and, and all of this content that's out and who gets to have it um, in the next few um, months and years. So um, it's an interesting time. A very interesting time. We're, if not at a turning point, we're certainly starting down a slope that and picking up speed. Well, I think I'll leave it at that. Thank you so much for, for all the time today. Thank you. This was a great pleasure. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week, we put out episodes like this one, trying to keep listeners ahead of the curve on how education is changing. We are free and open to all. And if you want to help keep us going, please tell a friend or colleague about the Ed Surge Podcast. Or give us a shout out on social media. And if you haven't already, please follow the Ed Surge Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And you can sign up for our weekly podcast newsletter where you can find links to go deeper on issues that we've talked about on the episodes. This episode was written and assembled by me, Jeff Young. And you can find me on Twitter at jryoung or on the web at jeffyoung.net. I had editing help this week from Rebecca Koenig. And the music is by Komaku, found on the Free Music Archive. We will be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening. <laughs>